You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hello, church. Such an honor to be with you once again uh, as we open God's word, as we hear him speak. My name is Brady Goodwin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Northway Church. And as we begin, I want to say that if you are new, perhaps you're watching this for the first time, welcome. We're really grateful that you have joined us. Um, As Amanda will uh, share at the end of our service next week, we will resume in-person gatherings. And you can go on our website and find information about what that looks like. But we are so eager to be with you in person once again. It has been too long. I am eager to see many of you in the weeks to come and can't wait um, for the opportunity to gather and worship in person with you. Today, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at the second half of Romans chapter two. And just as a way of recapping what we talked about last week in Romans two verses one through 16, we saw how Paul established that the righteous and the unrighteous will be judged the same that the quote unquote righteous, the self-righteous, the religious, they will be judged on the same standard as the unrighteous. This is because all people possess an innate knowledge of God's law and therefore all people are accountable to God for what they do. We can't point to our heritage. We can't point to religiosity as grounds for our acceptance before God. We can only look to the righteousness of God that has been revealed through Jesus Christ and is to be received by faith. What we're going to do today is look at the second half of Paul's argument in Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. This is a living case study that Paul's going to give to um, the case of the Jews. And what we're going to see is that the Jews believe, the Jews, part of his audience in the book of Romans, they believed that two things in particular provided the basis for their acceptance before God. First, that they possessed the law. And second, that they bore the sign of circumcision. Paul is going to refute this argument in order to further establish what we all need to hear, the biblical foundations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. All people have sinned and our only hope is outside of us, not within us. From there, we're going to apply Paul's argument as we consider the specific perils of self-righteousness in our day. We're gonna look at three expressions of self-driven efforts at righteousness that prevail in our context and how they mirror Paul's argument in Romans 2, 17 through 29 against the Jews. But we're gonna finish up by looking at how we can find freedom from our own self-righteousness through the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bible with you, I wanna invite you to turn to Romans 2. We're going to look at verses 17 through 29 as we consider um, the application of Paul's argument towards the self-righteous. Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. We'll read this passage together and we'll jump in. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, 
a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us and apply your truth to our hearts by the spirit's work. That all of it would drive us back to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for our lives, for the forgiveness of our sins, for new life in you, for a life that is given to glorify you and to please you. Would you help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first thing we're gonna look at is this case study in self-righteousness. Let's go back and think of some of the context. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul highlighted the just judgment of God against open rebellion. In chapter two, verses one through 16, which we looked at last week, he indicts the righteous and the, self, the religious and the self-righteous, who though believing themselves to be better off than the openly idolatrous were nonetheless guilty of the very same thing. Sins that while perhaps more acceptable were no less condemning. Paul's point in appealing to God's just judgment, regardless of their heritage or religious identity, is to convey this truth. Apart from Christ, all people stand condemned in their sins. Yet the Jews, who were the intended audience for chapter two, they would have heard Paul's words and said, Paul, you've made some mistake. We Jews, we have the law. We have the knowledge of God and we are privileged above those who are less worthy of receiving God's revelation. We have circumcision, the sign of God's faithfulness that even if we do sin, he will forgive us because we are his chosen people. And it's these two claims that Jews were privileged because of their access to God's law and the sign of God's covenant through circumcision that Paul directs his attention to in Romans 2, 17 through 29. He's going to respond by applying the truths that he introduced in 2, 1 through 16 to the specific case of the Jews. He's going to first demonstrate the hypocrisy of the Jews as the possessors, but not the keepers of the law. 
He will then point to the true nature of a circumcised heart to show that the Jewish sign of circumcision was only as valuable as the obedience of the one who bore it. And so let's look closely, starting in verse verse 17, we're gonna first see the hypocrisy of the Jews as the possessors of God's law. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, if... Ouch, Paul begins this section by questioning the Jews' own religious identity. Unlike his audience, he doesn't assume that to call oneself a Jew means that such is true. And as we'll see, he's introducing a point that he'll return to at the end of this section, that a person is not simply a Jew because they say they are or believe themselves to be. But this sentence also begins what's called in the New Testament, a conditional statement. These are if-then statements that um, the authors of the New Testament will use often to further their argument. If these things are true, then this will naturally follow. If this is the case, then this will not be demonstrated and so on. And what Paul will use this device for is first to address the Jews' self-conception, their own perception of themselves. If you see yourself in this way, then we need to talk about what that means for you. And he's going to point out eight characteristics that had become distorted in Jewish thinking. Look at the second half of verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. To rely on the law meant to put one's hope in having the law. This is different than obedience to the law because it reflects a sense of well-being that comes merely by possessing the word of God. When he says boast in God, he's pointing out the fact that the Jews boasted not in the grace of God, but in their status before God. They boasted in their privilege instead of God's mercy. Verse 18, and if you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, Because they possessed God's law, the Jews saw themselves as bearers of the knowledge of what is superior. They knew what God desired and others didn't because they took their cues from the law. And so as Paul will continue to say in verses 19 and 20, in their minds, the Jews were therefore to be the teachers. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If you have become convinced, if your self-concept has led you to become certain that this is your role. And notice that the things that follow are not wrong per se. They're actually really good things. This is because the Jews were to be the people through whom God's glory was reflected to a watching world. They should have been teachers of God's law and guides to the blind. Of course, we know when we look at the witness of scripture, they failed in that calling. And so the effect of these first few verses is to build a kind of tension. If you really are a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you boast in God, if you know his will, if you understand superior knowledge, if you are convinced of your roles as teacher, guide, leaders, his listeners would have been on the edge of their seat saying, okay, Paul, where are you going with this? Because I don't like what it sounds like you're about to say. What's your point? In verse 21, he tells them, you then who teach others, do you, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not rob or commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, if all this other stuff is true about you, do you really follow through? Do you really do what you say you do? You who have been set apart to mediate the character of God to others, do you do it? Do you actually do it? Paul's point is not that the Jews' self-conception, their job description was wrong. His point is that they didn't fulfill it. And there is some insider baseball going on here. Paul was a Jew. Paul knew what his life looked like before Christ. He would have been one who formerly modeled this way of thinking. And he knows in many ways that the answers to these questions is, of course, we don't do these things. We don't do what we say others should do, but wink, wink, it's all good. His aim is to highlight the contradiction in Jewish thinking that would have responded with this. You think that because you have the law, you are entitled to serve as leaders over others because of your privilege? You forget the purpose of such a calling. Instead of serving others and bringing glory to God, you're just serving yourself. And so closer examination is gonna reveal that you are not so innocent as you would suppose. You are not faithful to the very things you press other people into pursuing. And the result is jarring. As we read in verses 23 and 24, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul references Isaiah 52 verse five, which was written in the context of Jewish exile, an event that occurred because of the sins of Israel. They were held captive because of their disobedience and the surrounding nations reviled them and the God they served. When Paul quotes this verse here, he is saying in effect that the same things are happening every time you Jews look to the law and your religious identity as your hope rather than to the one who gave it to you. Every time you look to the gifts rather than the giver, you bring dishonor to God and other people reject him because of you. In this first section, Paul highlights the fundamental hypocrisy of the Jews. They bore the law. They believed themselves to be fulfilling the roles to which they were called, but they were blinded by their own disobedience, nullifying whatever status or privilege that they might otherwise claim. In the second half of this passage, Paul's going to look in addition to the hypocrisy of the Jews as the bearers of God's law, but not those who keep it. He's going to point out the invalidation of the sign of circumcision that came by their breaking the law. In verses 25 through 29, Paul turns his attention to this second entitlement claimed by his Jewish audience, that of circumcision the physical sign of God's covenant. In these verses, he's going to make a similar point. The signs you have received from God, they're not without value, but they don't accomplish the purpose you have for them if you disobey God's law. Let's look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
Some of you may read this and think, is he really talking about what I think he's talking about? Why are we talking about circumcision? That's weird. But we need to do some quick review of the significance of this sign for the Jewish people. And so I just want you to follow this argument with me. Way back at the beginning of your scriptures in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram. And he tells him that he's going to make him into a great nation. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A couple of chapters later in Genesis 15, Abraham asked God, how am I supposed to be a great nation if I have no heir. Abraham and his wife, Abram and his wife, Sarai were childless. And God responds by telling Abram, your very own son shall be your heir. He makes a promise. And as a result, your children shall be as many as the stars of the heaven. And what Abram did was not to discount that promise, but to believe it. He responded with faith. And the scriptures say that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That phrase is going to be very important when we get to chapter four when, uh, in the book of Romans for Paul's argument. A couple, of verse, a couple of chapters later in Genesis 17, God reiterates his covenant with Abram and he changes his name to Abraham. And he gives him a physical sign of that promise, circumcision. With the sign, he gives a call to faithfulness. Genesis 17 verses nine through 14, tell us how this sign was to be employed and why. It'll be on your screen. You can follow along. Genesis 17 verse nine. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And so circumcision serves as the visible sign of God's covenant with Abraham. But notice the order in which the sign was given. Abraham believed first and it was credited to him as righteousness. Circumcision was the physical sign of the covenant that began with Abraham's faith. Faithfulness was expected in response to God's promises, which awaited, when we look at the whole scope of redemption in the scriptures, it awaited the ultimate fulfillment of those promises in the coming of Jesus Christ. Circumcision was meant to be a temporary sign that would ultimately be superseded by the one who demonstrated the ultimate faithfulness of God to Abraham, his offspring, Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus had come as the fulfillment of these promises, circumcision was no longer necessary for those who would have trusted in Christ. But for Jews in Paul's day, circumcision meant something different. 
Instead of the sign of God's faithfulness, they persisted in believing that it was the needed sign of entrance into God's people. It was the sign that every person must have in accordance with the law keeping. It was the means by which they remained, at least in their eyes, in good standing before God. Instead of a sign of faith in believing God and his promises leading to righteousness before him, circumcision became a means of, of initiation into a life of adherence to God's law as a means of gaining God's favor. The difference is crucial to understand. One was a sign of God's faithfulness. One was a sign of man's attempts at faithfulness. This is why he says there's value for circumcision if you keep the law. The way you understand it, there's value if you'll do the words of the law. If you view circumcision as the sign of your place among God's people, now that Jesus has changed everything still, then you'd better keep the law. Otherwise that sign will mean nothing. It's not gonna shield you from God's wrath like you think it will, but it will instead expose you to that wrath by demonstrating the folly of thinking that your works could earn a place among God's people and in God's kingdom. This is why he says in verse 26 and 27, what he does, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, who keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Notice the parallel to what we talked about last week in Romans 2, verse 14. If Gentiles who do not have the law do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. And in the same way, if someone who is uncircumcised does what the law demands, their obedience will have the same effect of those who are circumcised. In turn, they will therefore judge those who possessing God's law and God's sign still fail to do what God demands. Paul then readies a hammer that he's about to drop on his audience. At the beginning of this section, you'll notice, you remember, he asked rhetorically, if you really are a Jew. Now he reveals why he asks such a question. He is saying a Jew is not what you think it is. A Jew is not someone who has the law and circumcision. A true Jew is one whose heart is aligned with God and who believes in accordance with the promises of God. And so he says in verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There's echoes of Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus here in John chapter three. In that chapter, Nicodemus praised Jesus for his teaching and his righteousness. And in many ways, congratulated himself on his pursuit of the very same things to which Jesus replies, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And in the same way, Paul reiterates the basic premise that runs throughout all of Romans 2. It is not your privilege, your status, your law keeping, or the sign of circumcision that will save you. Salvation comes only by the Spirit and only on the basis of faith in the one who has come to redeem you, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as with his previous discussion regarding a person's ability to attain righteousness, leading to salvation through their actions, Paul stresses that if your standing before God depends upon having the law, 
but not keeping it and hearing the sign of bearing the sign of circumcision, but distorting its purpose, then you're no better than a Gentile who has none of those things. Self-righteousness is of no benefit because it is impossible to be righteous in and of oneself. Our only hope, as we said at the beginning, is not within us, but outside of us. And yet, as with Paul's audience, we find ourselves rehearsing in our lives the very same basic errors as the Jews. We return again and again to self-righteousness and to our own peril. How do we do this? Let's consider three ways that I think this tendency shows up today for those who would call themselves Christians. The perils of self-righteousness, what are they? First, this is one I think we'll be pretty familiar with, what we might call cultural Christianity. This is simply to believe that because of one's upbringing and family, a person is a Christian. And in some ways, cultural Christianity is not nearly as significant an expression of self-righteousness as it would have been maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Our culture has changed significantly. It has become increasingly secularized and with it, it has brought about the decline of this perspective in our society as a whole. Yet for anyone born before or near 1990 or before or, or earlier, okay? This mindset, especially in the American South is still pervasive in both Protestant and Catholic traditions. And like what Paul mentions regarding possessing the law and understanding some of the benefits that the Jews enjoyed to be born and raised with Christian ethics is not a bad thing. It only becomes a bad thing if it becomes the basis of our standing before God instead of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have had many conversations with people who in describing their relationship to God, they tell me the story of a family who always believed in God, a family who always tried to do the right things, a family who always had historic involvement in the church or in some religious body, but conspicuously absent in such stories is any mention of the consciousness of one's sins of a response of faith to the message of Jesus's life, death and resurrection and the pursuit of Christ in daily life. Now, I wanna say that it's not strictly necessary that someone be able to articulate every fine point of doctrine regarding their beliefs in Jesus Christ to demonstrate the truthfulness of their salvation. But it is deeply concerning to hear someone share about their life and their relationship to God and including no detail at all about what it means to believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And what I suspect is that in many such cases, people have been taught that to be a Christian is simply to call oneself one on the basis of your family of origin, the place of birth, or the assumption that having a sense of morality qualifies a person for eternal life. And if that describes your story, you have to ask yourself, whether you have fallen prey to the same mistaken notion that exposure to Christian ethics and ideals somehow equates genuine faith in our Lord. Being raised in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Being born in Texas or Mississippi or Kentucky doesn't make you a Christian. Trying to do the right thing in your life doesn't make you a Christian. It is only faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins that makes a person a Christian. 
And I know that that's something that many of us who may be listening to this wrestle with. And it's self-righteousness. If it's not faith in Jesus, it's faith in yourself. The second way that we see self-righteousness show up is actually kind of hard to parse out. Okay, so hopefully I'll help explain it. It's church involvement and Christian ministry. Like I said, it's a less obvious expression when compared to cultural Christianity. But what I'm referring to is the way that men and women can often drift towards believing that because they are involved in doing good things for God, they're somehow okay before him, regardless of whether there is abiding faith in Jesus or not. So maybe you worked in a Christian camp when you were in college. Maybe you've been holding on to that experience as evidence of your faith in Christ. Some of you took seminary classes or you always sign up for whatever kind of equipping opportunity comes, uh, comes your way. But deep down, you smile at yourself for how faithful a student of God's word you are. Perhaps you have been involved in discipleship, mission trips, leading a small group. You've given your time, your money, your talents, all with this subtle, unspoken, but underlying hope that this will push you over the line in terms of God's favor. And perhaps when other people confront you in your present sin, you fall back on these experiences and you say to yourself, see, things are not so bad. I used to do this, this, and this. Me and God are good. I've made my peace with him. Instead of actively trusting him and seeking to walk with him in my life, I can just rest upon what I've done historically because of how earnest I was then. And yet this begs the question, what does it mean for a person today if having those past experiences, they persist in faithlessness? Is their past faith sufficient to cover their present apathy? The third example of self-righteousness that I wanna talk about goes by an interesting name that may be unfamiliar to you. It is the experience of scrupulosity. Okay, this is a historic term to describe what happens when a person's moral conscience goes haywire and it can't be trusted. Today, if you were to look at this experience, it most likely would go by the term religious OCD, but it is actually an expression of self-righteousness that I wanna show you shows up in people's lives. Um, Michael Imlet, a counselor with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, he wrote in an article on this uh, struggle called Scrupulosity When Doubts Devire. He, defi he defined this experience in the following ways. Intrusive or spontaneous, unbidden, unwanted, and obsessive, persistent, recurring thoughts and doubts about moral, spiritual issues which produce distressing levels of anxiety and the quest to rid oneself of that anxiety, usually by one or more of the following, performing compulsive behaviors, engaging in mental rituals, or avoiding triggering situations. And so it's the presence of intrusive and unwanted thoughts, obsessive thoughts. They produce anxiety in a person's heart. And in response to that anxiety, they try to find ways to alleviate it through different behaviors, different mental rituals, or by avoiding situations that might provoke that kind of response. And like I said, on the surface, this doesn't seem as much like an expression of self-righteousness, but let me explain how this process works out in a person's heart so that we can see how it mirrors the other two examples we've discussed. What happens is that a distressing thought enters a person's mind, really of anything, 
but often depicting something that the person would never really be inclined to do, but that he or she nonetheless thinks. Sometimes the thought will be sexual in nature. Sometimes it will be violent. Sometimes it will be the remembrance of some long forgotten sin that resurfaces in a person's mind. But whatever the source, the intrusion of such a thought leads this person to experience great anxiety. And unlike many, if not most, who might have a thought like that and dismiss it as an aberration out of hand and go on with their day, the person with a scrupulous heart will turn to such anxiety because deep down, He wonders if a thought represents his true heart condition. He's convinced that such a thought and its continued presence represents sin in his heart. And so does he really, do I really struggle with the things that I have seen depicted in my mind? If I had these thoughts, um, I must have, I must struggle in this way. Christians don't think this way. If I have thought such horrible behavior, such horrible circumstances, am I really even saved? And so such a person does what any biblically minded or so they think person would do. He seeks to repent of his so-called sin through confession, good works, or anything that he thinks will lessen the intensity of his anxiety and provide him the assurance that he's so desperately looking for of his standing before God. He'll look to other people to provide that assurance, to give him a sense of peace, but he will often become a burden to such people because of his neediness. It's overwhelming, but because of the intensity of his concern, these actions, they only alleviate his distress for a short period of time because inevitably another thought's going to enter his mind that will lead him down the same cycle. What's underneath this struggle is three things, a distorted understanding of the character of God, a distorted understanding of the purposes of God's word, and a distorted understanding of one's own heart. So regarding their understanding of God, such a person believes deep down that God demands perfection. They often desire to be perfect, to be rid of every sin, and they are therefore unable to handle any anxiety about that, their righteousness or their perceived lack thereof. They, distort their under, they have a distorted understanding of God's word and the fact that they sometimes see God's word as a help, but more often as a source of anxiety in its reminders that I can never be enough before the Lord. And so scripture either becomes a token that a person consults in an effort to eliminate his distress. So like praying specific verses compulsively and repetitively, or it becomes something that he avoids altogether because of how it reminds him of his perceived wickedness. But lastly, the distorted understanding of his own heart. Such a, such a person actually believes himself to be able to be perfect before God. If he could only get rid of these fears, of these lusts, of these intrusions. And so scrupulosity represents a type of self-righteousness because it removes God and it exalts oneself as a person responds to his or her difficulty. Everybody has intrusive thoughts to some degree or another. But what a scrupulous person does is dwell on these thoughts to such an extent that their only way forward is to offer up these little atonements in miniature with the hopes that somehow that person could feel normal and sane again. 
This may feel like an uncommon struggle to you, but you are listening to someone who has wrestled with this experience and this form of self-righteousness. For years in my early 20s, I experienced this cycle nearly every day. I will still have days where this cycle will resurface. Back then, I just about drove my dear wife crazy because of my constant confessions of every concerning thought I had. She was gracious and she stuck with me. But in all of these challenges, what was going on is I could never resist. I could never handle resisting the temptation to turn to these behaviors as a way of trying to find peace, however short-lived it was. And instead of learning to trust that what God says about my forgiveness in Christ is authoritative rather than my own interpretation, I would say things like this. Perhaps you've said this. I know that God has forgiven me, but I just need to forgive myself for these tendencies in my heart. I misunderstood what temptation even was because though I would have never wanted to do the things that came into my mind, their mere presence served as a stain on the way that I saw my standing before God. And I couldn't bear the thought of not measuring up, of failing, of needing Christ's grace. You know people who struggle in this way. You may not realize it. Part of this is because they often don't have the language to capture their experiences. I've cared for multiple people just this year who have exhibited the same kind of patterns. And that doesn't even count the many others over the years who have shared similar stories. And so whether it's cultural Christianity, whether it's your past Christian service, or whether it's a more intense struggle like scrupulosity, all of these experiences mirror the errors that Paul highlights in this passage. All three elevate a type of privilege as the basis of one's acceptance before God. All three emphasize a person's works as necessary to maintain their standing before God. And all three will hamstring the work of the gospel in your life. And so how do we gain freedom from our self-righteousness. We find it in the righteousness of Jesus. And here's how. First, we have to acknowledge that self-righteousness exists in our lives in whatever ways it may be expressed. For some of you, it's the examples we've mentioned today. For others, it may look different. And whatever it is, we have to see it so that we can pray that we would have clear eyes, that God would reveal what is hidden in our hearts, that he would keep us from presumptuous or high-handed sins. Second, we should then exercise humble, intelligent repentance for our efforts at pursuing righteousness before God. Humble, intelligent, not prideful, frenetic. Humble, intelligent repentance. All, all of this knowing that as we stressed last week, it is God's kindness to lead us to a place of repentance. And so we see our sin for what it is. We see our self-righteousness for what it is. We respond with humble repentance. And then third, we turn towards Christ by faith, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time with the full assurance that his forgiveness is ours and that his forgiveness is what we need. 
when we're tempted to doubt that forgiveness, while also being tempted to look at our own works, our status, our knowledge as the hope for our lives, we can recognize that this temptation to disbelieve the promises of God is just like any other temptation to sin. And so we are called to learn to endure such temptations by the spirit so that we may not yield to them. First Corinthians 10, 13 will say no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to all people. And God is faithful who will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear, but along with the temptation will provide the means of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The way out of temptation is faithful endurance and reliance upon the spirit of God. Fifth, and perhaps most challenging for us who struggle with self-righteousness, we learn to rest. We learn to rest in the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ and we abide in him. The word abide in scripture means to remain. We stay with Jesus and we never leave. He will never leave us. So why would we ever think of leaving him and turning back towards ourselves? We remember, sixth, that our sanctification is a lifelong process. It's going to go on for a long time, folks. God is faithful through all of it. He's patient because he's building something that is more amazing than we can understand to behold. He's laying out the plans. He's establishing the foundation all so that we might walk in the grace of Jesus towards our ultimate hope of eternity with God. Seventh, we grow in our capacity to trust, to trust God as we share our burdens with others. And we encourage other people in their faith in Christ. We take time specifically to offer a word fitly spoken so that those in our lives would be built up and that they would experience God's grace through our words. And then lastly, we keep striving towards Christ from the foundation of the gospel. We must never grow tired of looking into the mystery, which is God's redeeming love for sinners. We peer into this glory and we do so until our own hearts are full. And then we commit ourselves to honoring him, not so that he would be obligated to us, but because he's already given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us respond in faith to that end. Father, we love you. And we thank you that in your kindness and in your grace, you reveal those areas of our hearts where we so often struggle with trusting you, with trusting in the work of Christ. And we so often turn towards our own efforts to gain a standing before you. Would you help us by your spirit to look to you by faith? Would you help us by your spirit to never do anything out of obedience without first doing it from the foundation of our acceptance before you in Jesus Christ? Would you help us to repent of self-righteousness, to respond with humility when it shows up? Would you help us to resist the temptation towards anxious behaviors that would drive us back towards ourselves, but instead to rest in your sufficient grace. And would all of that glorify you? Would all of it confirm the truth of the gospel in our lives? Help us to be a church that's marked by a complete dependence upon you. We ask and pray this in the name of Jesus and by the spirit.
Amen.